Well, good morning, people of God, God's people, Christ's sheep, bought with his precious blood. That's who believers are. And, you know, we're told in Scripture's elders to look upon God's people in that way as those for whom Christ died. And so it is a great honor to be able to stand before God's people and bring his word to you today. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 10. We are today in verses 1 to 20. <clears throat> I want to thank Trey for filling in with such a short notice last week while I was sick. Uh, and for taking us, once again, through the riches of Paul's letter to the Philippians. What a, what a wonderful epistle that has been for our church and just the way that God has given us these uh, doses of this encouragement to the saints in unity and humility and love for one another, in service for one another, in Christ-like, self-denying love. It's just, uh, I think, such a great medicine for our church as we walk the Christian life, as we go through. We're constantly seeing, as we go through Philippians, as Trey takes us through that, constantly seeing what God's will is for us as a local church, as a congregation, as we uh, do life together as we confess sins to one another, as we study his word together and sharpen one another, encourage one another in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So I'm thankful to him for bringing that to us last week. Today we return to the ten plagues, and so far we've looked at seven of them. So we've had the Nile to blood, frogs everywhere, annoying little bugs, a blanket of flies, dead cattle, debilitating ulcers. And two weeks ago, we saw the hail like never before. We've watched these seven plagues unfold. And the title for the sermon this morning is The Eighth Plague, Devouring Locusts. As I've mentioned early on, the ten plagues, uh, which have been called that throughout church history, throughout the Christian tradition, they're called the ten plagues, but in the Jewish tradition, they are known as the ten strikes. And what we've seen is strike after strike after strike. From Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, against Pharaoh and against the gods of Egypt. And we've seen that all along, that God is showing Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt to be nothing. He is laying them low as he exalts himself. This is a contest between the glory of Egypt and the glory of the Lord. You know, uh, even today we recognize this sort of human glory of ancient Egypt. Uh, no one can watch a documentary on ancient Egypt or see pictures of the pyramids or, or go there perhaps and not think on a human level in terms of the glory of ancient Egypt. We think of the glory of Rome, but I think even more the glory of this ancient, ancient civilization. Going back to 3200 B.C., leaving the greatest wonder of the ancient world for us, the pyramids. But what we read in the plagues is that there is a contest between this so-called glory, this human glory of Egypt, and the glory of Yahweh. The glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord 
God, the maker of heaven and earth. And the winner of this contest all along has been abundantly clear. Throughout Exodus, throughout the plagues, God is glorifying himself through these ten strikes. And so let me just ask you this question. We've been here for some time. Some of you are thinking, how many more sermons on the plagues? Can we please move on? Uh, We've been here for a little while. But let me just ask you this as you consider the plagues and the effect that they had on those ancient people. The effect that they had on the Egyptians, on the surrounding nations, on the Israelites. The intention of the plagues for God glorifying himself. I'll ask you this. Is God being glorified in your heart? Uh, Regardless of the extent to which you are ready to move beyond the plagues... Have you, have you seen God glorified, exalted, his power, his person in your own heart as we've gone through these plagues? You know, for the ancient Israelites, the plagues were one of the greatest demonstrations of God's power. This was part of the tradition. Uh, At the very top of the tradition of the Israelites as they brought their faith from generation to generation to generation. They looked back on this moment of God sending these ten plagues, these ten strikes on Egypt. They looked back here and God was glorified in their midst. So is God being glorified in your heart? Or do you find that your heart is numb and cold and dry, earthy, man-centered, self-centered. Ask the Lord in his grace to break open that cold, dry heart. But God is not done yet. As we come to our text for today, we are in the final set of three And as we know, the grand finale is just around the corner. The tenth plague, the taking of the firstborn throughout all the land of Egypt, the Passover, the exodus, the sending out of the Israelites from Egypt, God delivering his people, bringing them out from Egypt. We're not quite there yet. Today we come to the eighth plague of swarming, devouring locusts. If you would go ahead and stand with me. As we read God's word together. Exodus 10. Verses 1 to 20. This is the word of Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses. Go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart. And the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh. The God of the Hebrews. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. 
And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve Yahweh your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. But he said to them, Yahweh be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go. The men among you serve Yahweh, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hell has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hell had left. Not a green thing remained. Neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh, your God, and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with Yahweh, your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with Yahweh. And Yahweh turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to our God. This is a special time. Don't waste it. It will never come again. We're gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. This particular worship service will never be recreated. Lord willing, we pray, we'll get to gather again next Sunday, and all of us who are here will be here, but maybe not. So listen to the Lord today. Respond to the Lord today while there's still time, while we still live, while we still breathe. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you today. You are the living God. You are You exist unlike all the gods of the nations, past, present, and future. All the 
gods that people create in their own imaginations, in their own suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, in their own desire to fashion gods in our own image rather than worship the one in whose image we are made. Father, we recognize that you alone are God and we praise you this morning that there is a people gathered here this morning in this building together who confess that you alone are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are the eternal I am, infinite, that you are the creator and sustainer of all that is, both unseen and seen, that you are our maker and our redeemer through the blood of your Son and the work of your Spirit to circumcise our hearts, to seal us for the day of redemption. Father, we praise you that we're here worshiping you with our lips, that our hearts are turned towards you. God, apart from your grace, we would have no such desire. Lord, apart from your grace, all of our religious works would be but hypocrisy. God, we bow before you this morning and recognize our sinfulness, Lord, that although we are in Christ Jesus, we recognize the sin in our own lives, in our own hearts, and we ask your forgiveness. We pray that our request for forgiveness would not be like that of Pharaoh, but that it would be genuine, that it would be from a pure heart desiring to have clean hands. God, be merciful to us as a church, we pray. We ask that this morning that you would speak into each of our hearts, you would prick us, that you would root out sin from us, Lord, that we would turn more and more from the things of this world, that they would become strangely dim. God, that we would see your glory, just as you magnified your name at the plagues in Egypt. We pray that you would be magnified in the hearts of your people here today. As we read Uh, These ancient words, as we read of these ancient stories, Lord, that they would not be merely ancient tales, but that they would be the very truthful, historical, and presently powerful word of God in each of our hearts, Lord. We ask that you would do this work in us, bind our hearts to you, and bind our hearts to one another, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this description of the eighth plague gives us four things to focus on this morning. So these will be our points if you want to write these down as we go through uh, our sermon text. These will be our stepping stones, if you will. So first, we get a divine explanation, verses 1 to 6. Uh, We get a weak concession in verses 7 to 11, and then a great devastation, verses 12 to 15. And finally, a foreseen continuation in verses 16 to 20. So that's where we're headed this morning. So let's begin with a divine explanation, and I'm going to read again verses 1 to 6. So if you'll look with me in your Bibles there. Most important part of the sermon is the reading of God's Word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. 
and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen. From the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Here we get an explanation, a divine explanation of what is happening and why. And we've talked about this already, but there's a, a concentrated way in which it is presented here. A description of what or an explanation of what is happening and why. And as we saw in Romans chapter 9 through 10... With the unbelief of Israel, this explanation comes in two parts. And it's interesting to me that in Romans 9 to 10, as we get the description of Israel's unbelief, we know that Paul has the plagues in view. As we saw two weeks ago, he quotes from Exodus 9 regarding Pharaoh. We know that that in Paul's mind, he is thinking of the plagues. And what we find is that there is an analogous situation going on. What was happening in the time of Pharaoh, with Pharaoh, was also happening at the time that Paul is writing to the Romans. There are two parts of this explanation. Two parts that pull together divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We've talked about that a little before, but let's talk about it again this morning as we see it presented here. So first, divine sovereignty. God tells Moses in verse 1, listen to these words, go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. So what is going on here? Why are the plagues continuing? One, after the other. Why is this still happening? Our text here is clear. God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. It is undeniable. It is clear from the text. We've talked about it the very first time that this hardening is mentioned. Before Moses goes to Pharaoh, God says, I am going to harden his heart. And that is what we see here. God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Pharaoh will not let the people go until God is ready for him to let the people go. So why is God doing this? I mean, he's commanding Pharaoh, let the people go. But God is hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. This is paradoxical. It's mysterious to us. It is beyond our ability to understand precisely the way in which, in terms of cause and effect, in terms of God's governance, 
in terms of the inner workings of the human heart, this is in some ways for us impenetrable. Why is God doing this? We see here, what are God's purposes in dragging out these plagues, in hitting Egypt with so many strikes, strike after strike after strike? Why? Why is God doing this? Verse 1, that, in order that, for the sake of, for the purpose that, I may show these signs of mine among them. That's why God is doing it. Time after time after time, that's why God is working inside of Pharaoh's heart in the way that he is, is in order that he might show these signs of mine among them. God's signs are demonstrations of his power, his supremacy, his holiness. They are the effects that emanate from his mighty hand, from his omnipotence, from his supremacy. They show him to be the one and only God, the creator of heaven and earth. The God who created the Egyptians is showing them that he alone is God. Not Ra, not Osiris, not Anubis, not any of those so-called gods. None of them exists. And none of them can stand before the mighty hand of Yahweh the God of the slave people, the God of the foreigners, the God of the Hebrews. That is why the Lord is dragging out the plagues, to show Egypt who God is and what their gods are not. Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That is what God is doing, but he goes on. The Lord goes on here as he describes his purposes to Moses. We read in verse 2, and that, and in order that, and for the sake of, and for the purpose that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, the verb translated here as dealt harshly, could also be translated humiliated or made a fool of. The silliness and foolishness of human glory. Human glory. What is human glory? Look anywhere throughout history, anywhere today, human glory is but a speck. It is as nothing. The most glorious person, the most glorious army, the most glorious king is really as nothing. The silliness and foolishness of human glory, the worthlessness of man-made gods, that is what God is showing his people as he pounds Egypt with the ten plagues. Why? Because God's people will go on to be tempted to take hold of human glory as they say, give us a king, just like all the other nations, tall and handsome and strong. Give us chariots and strong armies. Give us human glory. 
And they will be tempted all along to go after false gods, to go after the gods of Egypt, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of all of the surrounding nations. God is putting an indelible stamp on the minds of his people that all such pursuits are foolishness and worthlessness like chaff that the wind drives away. And this is to be transmitted, we're told here, from generation to generation. It says, tell. The Lord says this to Moses, tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson. Every generation is to hear of the wondrous deeds of the Lord. Every generation is to be told about the first punch and the second punch and the third punch and the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, the parting of the sea, the swallowing of the Egyptian army and beyond. They are to be told of the glory of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson. That is a command. You know, one of the most important jobs we have in this life is communicating the glorious deeds of the Lord to the next generation. You know, you might be doing all kinds of things, but if you're not doing that, fail. Communicating the glorious deeds of the Lord to the next generation has always been worship of Yahweh 101. It's always been at the base. It's always been the umbrella. We are to tell our children of God's glory. Not just have fun with them. Not just make sure they have food to eat. Not just give them a shelter. And, and, and see them off to college or whatever else. We are to tell them of God, of his glory, of his might, of his love, of his power, of his covenant-keeping love. If God has given us children, we must instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6. Speak of him always. Not in some manufactured way. Not simply during a period of instruction, but always. Let the word of God always be on our tongues, on our foreheads. Let God, the Lord, his power, his love always be flowing from us to our children. It is natural. If you're busy doing all sorts of other things, but neglecting this one great thing, it is probable that you are guided by vainglory and a desire to be seen by men. You know, no one can see you steadily instructing your kids in the Lord. There's no glory from that out there. But there's, there's pats on the back and there's words of affirmation and there's glory when you're doing it out there. Do it in the home first. This is the way of the Lord. This is the way of God's people. And the biggest job that we have as fathers, as men in this church, is to instruct our children in the way of the Lord and in his glorious deeds. Do your kids know what God has done? Do our kids know what, what he's done in the world, the effects of his power? 
The ultimate purpose is here stated. That you may know that I am Yahweh. Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That you may know that I am Yahweh. That I am the Lord your God. That God's people may have absolute unshakable confidence in his matchless nature and his mighty works. You know, this is what God is up to in the world. And if you're a Christian, this is what God is up to in the details of your life. If this is what God is up to in these massive displays of power and glory in the plagues, this is what God is up to in the minutia of all of our lives. That we would know him. That's what our trials are about, that we would know him. That's what our blessings, all the things that we thank him for, it's that we might know him. All the relationships that we have, the the influences and the helps that we receive, that we might know him. Everything in your life is carefully and delicately designed and placed in order that you might know the Lord. That he is the Lord. Second, we see human responsibility. So we see what God is doing. We get a divine explanation of what God is doing. From from one angle, we see the divine sovereignty. And from another angle, we see the human responsibility. In verse 3, Moses tells Pharaoh why the plagues are continuing. So we've already answered that question. Uh, Let's move on now. We've answered the question. Why are the plagues continuing? We just saw it. But we're not done. There's another reason, there's another answer for why the plagues are continuing. And now the focus is on human responsibility. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. So let's ask our question, what is going on? Why are the plagues continuing? Answer, persistent pride before the face of God. That's why they keep coming. Blow after blow after blow. Why? Because of persistent pride before the face of God. Pharaoh refuses to humble himself before God. The plagues are continuing because of Pharaoh's sinful pride. Psalm 147, 6 says, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. You could say that each plague is a casting of this wicked and prideful king to the ground. One time after another, Yahweh is casting this prideful Pharaoh who refuses to humble himself before Yahweh, casting his prideful self to the ground. We need to recognize that Pharaoh is here a picture of every unbeliever. If you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to understand that Pharaoh is a picture of your very own heart and conduct and of all of our hearts and conduct before we came to the Lord. When we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we don't just get the glories of God's salvation at the end of that section. We get three whole verses to remind us of what we were, 
what we were but God. What we were before God saved us. This is the state of fallen humanity. Persistent pride before the face of God. That's the reason there will be people in hell. There will be people in hell because of persistent, hardened, rebellious, angry, self-exalting, self-centered pride before the sovereign judge of all, before the creator, before the ruler of heaven and earth. Every person in hell will be such before God. So with sin comes consequences. And so Moses says to Pharaoh in verse 4, For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And then in verse 5, And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. If you refuse, another plague will come. And Moses goes on to describe what that plague will be like in verses 5 to 6. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come back to verses 5 to 6, this description of the coming plague. We're going to come back to those verses when we look at the plague, or at least come back to the content of those verses when we come back to the actual plague itself. So let me go ahead and move now to a weak concession. We've seen a divine explanation. Now we come to a weak concession. Look with me at verses 7 to 11. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds. For we must hold a feast to Yahweh. But he said to them, The Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. One commentator said, It is as though Pharaoh himself puts his hands on them and pushes them out the door. Surprisingly, here we read that Pharaoh's servants sort of turn in on him. I mean, this is, this is shocking, uh, given the, the status of Pharaoh within Egypt. His servants there begin to turn on Pharaoh and give him this unsolicited counsel. They begin to tell him what he needs to do and what he is bringing on Egypt. Enough is enough. We can't take it anymore. You can't keep refusing their demands. Verse 7, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? We know that God has been hardening the servants' hearts as well. But at this point, you get the impression that the servants are looking at Pharaoh, scratching their heads going, are you blind? Are you insane? What is wrong with you? Why are you not responding in any way? The hail nearly ruined the vegetation in the land. And now the locusts threaten to strip anything that remains. Egypt is already ruined. 
Pharaoh, we can't take it anymore. So Pharaoh listens to his servants and calls Moses and Aaron back, telling them that they can go and worship Yahweh, their God. But he asks this question, who is to go? Now, tell me again, who's going with you out there to worship your God? Moses' response is clear. Everyone. Everyone is to go. Verse 9, Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. All the people and all the animals are to go. Not one man, woman, or child left behind. Not one sheep or goat left behind. Not one hoof, as Moses will go on to say the end of the next plague. All the people and all the animals must go. And to this response, Pharaoh is furious. He refuses to let them take their children with them and accuses them of having some kind of evil purpose in their minds. No, he says, go. The men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. Now, commentators debate here what is meant by uh, this word here used for men, it's, enti- it's not entirely clear whether Pharaoh's servants and Pharaoh are saying men only go or adults only go. The word does suggest men, but the context suggests adults because later uh, with the next plague, there's the emphasis on the children going as well. And so it's not entirely clear, but either way, this is a weak concession. Pharaoh says, everyone's not going, just some of you, but all the people must go. And together, as God's people, with their sacrificial offerings, God's people, and the wealth that God has blessed them with, together, collectively, entirely, they must gather before the Lord their God. Nothing else will do. No abbreviated partial worship will suffice. They must gather before the Lord as a whole people, as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, as God's covenantal people, worshiping him as their God. So we read in verse 11 that after Pharaoh makes this weak concession, he forces Moses and Aaron out of his presence. He drives them out, as I said before. And this, of course, anticipates what will happen after the tenth plague. We're told in chapter 6, verse 1, God reassures Moses that he will drive them out of his land. So all along, as as the plagues are going on, Moses knows that God is going to have Pharaoh drive the people out of the land. And here we are at the end of the eighth plague, a little picture of what will happen after the tenth. Pharaoh will drive the people out just as he drives Moses and Aaron out of his presence here in the eighth plague. Thirdly, we come to the plague itself, a great devastation. Look with me at verses 12 to 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night, When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before 
nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hell had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. What had been warned in verses 5 to 6 now comes. A plague of locusts. This con- these condensed grasshoppers coming upon the land, swarming and devouring. Moses warned Pharaoh that the locusts would cover the land, that they would eat all the remaining vegetation and fill the houses of the Egyptians in a way never before seen in Egyptian history. Here the Lord commands Moses to hold his staff in the air over Egypt to initiate the plague. It is as though Moses is inviting the locusts to come. As he holds up his arms, as he holds out the staff, it is as though Moses is calling the locusts, come, feast. But here we see that God clearly uses natural means to bring the locusts from a distant place. There is no transformation as we saw with the the gnats or as we saw before with the water of the Nile. No transformation. He brings the locusts from elsewhere. And there is no immediate appearing. The locusts don't immediately appear as they did with the flies or with the the lice or mosquitoes or gnats. Instead, the Lord uses a wind from the east to quickly carry the locust eastward towards Egypt. It reminds us that God is both the creator and the governor over that creation. We've seen God create. We've seen God transform things. The staff into a serpent. The Nile water into blood. The sand into these gnats. But here we see God working through his creation. He can choose to work supernaturally or naturally. And here we see both. And in fact, everything God does is supernatural uh, because he's doing it. It is a miracle. But it is a miracle through natural means. And we've seen that. We've seen uh, where individuals have tried to explain uh, the plagues merely naturalistically. Uh, There was an inundation of the Nile. This flood created the, precipitated all of these events. And this is what happened. And what we've seen as we've gone through this is that that's not the case at all. God is working miraculously. He's showing his power so that it is abundantly clear that this is not just some chain of events. This is not just some string of occurrences that some later Egyptian or some later Israelite can look back on and say, well, it was a crazy time. It was a crazy time with the weather. It was a crazy time with wildlife back then. No, no. This is all meant to highlight the power of the maker. Whether by means of natural events or in this transformative supernatural way. Verses 14 to 15 describe the devastation. It is a total covering of the land. Unprecedented in Egyptian history. The land was so covered that it could not even be seen. It was darkened. These locusts would have had brownish, black backs. The whole land would have appeared black, dark. And we recognize that this is a little pointer to the next plague. The next plague will be a plague of darkness. And so this darkness that comes upon the land as the land is covered in these locusts points forward to the ninth when God will bring 
darkness. But most significantly, they ate all the remaining vegetation. So verse 15, they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hill had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Later in verse 17, Pharaoh will ask Moses to plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Now, why would Pharaoh call the locust plague a death? Why would he refer to this particular plague as a death? Well, the answer is that the removal of every green thing from the land, and I think we are to understand that there was no more green after this plague, gone, everything devoured, everything green that was left, those broken, busted up trees, those mashed, smashed plants by the hail, now gone. All the green is gone. And what this would have done is created the threat of mass famine and starvation, mass death. And so that's the reason why here, Pharaoh refers to this plague as death. No vegetation to eat and nothing to feed the cattle. This is a death. And it points forward to the death of the firstborn that will come in two more plagues. So all of this is being anticipated as we're moving through to the climax. You know, there's a principle for us to consider here. Here's what I want you to think about. Human pride leads only to death. You know, pride is in all of our hearts. It's part of what it means to be fallen. This desire to elevate and exalt self. This desire to to maximize personal pleasure, comfort, ease, renown. It is this self-exaltation, which is the exact opposite of what we see in Philippians 2 with our Lord Jesus, who came, gave his life on the cross, But then God exalted him. The Father exalted him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is the exact opposite. He's the antipathy of fallen man. He's the antipathy of human person in Adam. Where we are filled with pride, Christ was filled with humility. And apart from Christ and the life of Christ in us, we will go to our graves smothered and saturated in pride. Dripping pride. It doesn't matter if you're shy. It doesn't matter if you're introverted. It doesn't matter if you lack self-confidence or you're not self-assertive. The truth is, behind every personality type and every fallen heart is this wicked, self-exalting pride. Most of all, pride against God. Pride over God. The exaltation of self is the worship of self in place of God. And human pride leads only to one destination. Nourish it. Perpetuate it. Bathe yourself in it. And you will one day go to hell with it. It leads to only one 
place. Humbling ourselves before the Lord Christ, by contrast, leads to life. Humbling ourselves before this Jesus Christ who is Lord, falling before him, submitting to him, obeying him, trusting in him, and not in our own works, not in our own ability to clean up, but looking away from ourselves to Christ as Lord and Savior is the only way to life. It's the only way to escape the second death, the lake of fire, the wrath of God, the judgment to come. Only through Christ can we flee this pride and the judgment that it will inevitably bring. Finally, this morning, we are going to look at a foreseen continuation. And we get that in the last several verses, verses 16 to 20. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh, your God, and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And then look at the way the text reads at this point. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Just kind of, again, again, again. Here we are, again. At this point, we've already read the conclusion to seven plagues. By this point, Pharaoh's response is predictable. It is expected. It is foreseen. He summons Moses and Aaron, but this time hastily. He's desperate. He confesses his sin, as we've seen before, but here he says that he has sinned against Yahweh and against Moses and Aaron, and he asks for forgiveness. And then, as we've seen before, he asks for prayer. Plead with Yahweh on my behalf. Plead with the Lord that he would remove this death from me. And then we find Moses just going out and doing it. And Moses' lack of response here suggests that he knows very well that this is just like the rest. This is kind of becoming a bit of a routine. This is kind of becoming a bit of a sort of, okay, here we go. It's almost when Pharaoh opens his mouth, Moses goes, blah, blah, blah. Because that's exactly what we have. So Moses leaves and he goes back out. He prays like all the other times. He knows very well that this is just like the rest. It is a foreseen continuation of previous events. But Moses keeps the story moving forward. He knows what God is doing and what God is going to do. So as I said before, he goes out and he pleads to Yahweh on behalf of Pharaoh. And as we've seen before, God responds immediately and entirely. God is working through Moses. It is God who is doing all of this. Moses is a mere instrument. And we must never forget that as we go through the Bible. If the likes of Moses is a mere instrument, what in the world do we think we are? Really? We are mere instruments in God's hand. None of us is indispensable. Any of us could be replaced. Any of us could be used by the Lord to accomplish his purposes. What mercy, what grace that God would use us. 
Those described in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, who were by nature children of wrath like all the rest. That he would use us. That he would do anything through us for his glory. And here we see him using Moses. And he responds to Moses' prayer Immediately and entirely, he sends a strong west wind to drive every single locust out of the land of Egypt towards or into the Red Sea or the Yam Suf. And we'll talk more about the Yam Suf or the Red Sea later, but I'm convinced, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm convinced that the Red Sea, uh, the, the, the body of water that is crossed, is the Gulf of Aqaba. As it goes into, they, they crossed the Gulf of Aqaba and they went into Arabia. So we'll talk about that more as we come to that later. But here we see that God raises up a west wind and he blows the locust away, either into or towards this Red Sea. As we close this morning, I want you to consider if today is just another foreseen continuation for you. You're here. Today is, is today just another foreseen continuation. Once again, you've come here to this worship gathering on a Sunday morning. Once again, you've heard God's word, read, sung, preached. You've been confronted once again with the gospel that in our sin we are unholy and God is holy and that apart from Christ there's only death but through Jesus Christ there's life. My prayer for all of us today is that this will not be just another Sunday. Just like another encounter with Pharaoh. Is your encounter with God's word this morning just like another encounter between Pharaoh and Yahweh or Pharaoh and Yahweh's servants with Moses and Aaron? Is that what's happening today? Same pattern, same routine, same outcome, maybe the same superficial confessions and unkept promises, just like Pharaoh. May we humble ourselves before the Lord. May we turn from sin and lay hold of this God who gives eternal life to all who would trust in his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for time to gather around it and be instructed from it. Lord, we thank you for this entire service. And we do ask that this would not be another Time, just another time of superficial confessions and unkept promises. Just another time of going through the motions. For Lord, we know that soon we will all be gone from this earth. Sooner than our minds realize as years turn into decades, and decades turn into lifetimes. Soon enough, we will be before your face. 
God, would it be this morning that our confessions would be deep and robust and heartfelt and filled with Holy Spirit-guided resolve to turn away from sin and follow you? Would it be that our promises to you this morning, our, our vows to you this morning, that the things we say to you this morning would not be cheap like the words of Saul or the words of Pharaoh, that our sorrow would not be cheap like the sorrow of Judas, but that it would be true and deep and genuine, coming from love for you and love for neighbor. God, only by your Spirit. And yet, we stand here this morning responsible for all that we will and think and do. So, Lord, would we take responsibility for our lives before your face, O God. We pray that you would guide us as we come now to partake of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this picture of the gospel. And we pray that as we go through it, Lord, that we would be grateful that our hearts would be filled with joy, that we would be joyful people because of what you've done for us, that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've brought us from enslavement to freedom in Jesus. God, would we just rejoice this morning, confessing our sins, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness knowing that with Paul we say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We conclude, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, God, that you have saved us, and that though our works are tainted, and though we see the idols of our hearts and our sin, you have washed our sins away before your face. You have declared us righteous through Christ, and we praise you for that this morning. Would we take heart In that, would we be filled with joy because of that, looking away from ourselves to Christ Jesus? Would you bless us now as we go through the Lord's Supper? In Jesus' name, amen.